You're listening to 3CR Radio. In with for you you're on in your face on 3cr with james on today's show we chat with actor law burns and filmmaker alfred peck joins us about their new documentary freedom street 3CR. while law burns is an actor from melbourne who identifies as non-binary and law begins that interview by describing their journey as an actor oh that's a big question i first became interested in acting in primary school and then spent the entirety of the rest of my school career doubting myself and pushing it away a bit. And I uh, decided to give it a proper go in about 2014 and started doing some classes and student films and things and really enjoyed it. And then through the uh, coming to terms with my identity process, I took a bit of a break because there weren't any non-binary roles and I started writing my own roles uh, because of that, and I'd, I'd previously discovered a love of writing, and that sort of led me into more queer theatre and things now, which is great. So that's it's in a nutshell, I suppose. So tell us about some of the roles you wrote that you created for yourself. Oh, um, short films mainly, and they were sort of an excuse to practice my martial arts skills. I started uh, Japanese jiu jitsu in 2014, no, 16, and stage combat in 2015. And it was really itching to actually try these skills out on a stage or in a film. So I just wrote little sort of scenes that were fight scenes. And I have, I'm working on a play at the moment, actually. Uh, that's a, about an hour long. Uh, and that's also an excuse for stage combat, but a bit of a, a play around Shakespeare's Much Do About Nothing as well, but set in Australia with pirates because it's me and that's inevitably what happens. So it sounds like you've got a love of pirates. Tell us a bit more about that. I <laughs> uh, started off with Pirates of the Caribbean that my friend introduced me to when I was probably 13 or something. Uh, and I guess that came with the whole, the territory of being mask all my life and always wanting to be, you know, the Jedi or the pirates or Peter Pan or any of those kind of heroes or anti-heroes, I guess, in the case of Peter Pan. Uh, and yeah, I just, I love the history of pirates as well, even though they're really, it's a mixture of horror and or like they did have some interesting, they were quite organised as well. But um, yeah, I, I find them interesting. It sounds like Australian television and Australian film and to a lesser extent Australian theatre is well behind the times when it comes to the representation of non-binary people. 
What are your thoughts on that? I, I would agree. I mean, it's a global thing as well. I think Australia is improving. There are people like Nick Calder in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Um, they're playing Scorpius, so that makes me very happy. Uh, there's, yeah, small steps being taken, but I definitely – one of the reasons I took a step back was because I was doing some background extra work and it was just so gendered and I couldn't, you know, you're in a, a skewed power dynamic in that scenario, just, you know, being one of many background artists. So I didn't say anything and it was just very uncomfortable. Um, yeah, so there's definitely a long way to go, but I can see change happening and, you know, being able to be cast in more projects now is fantastic because I may well have just stepped away completely or, you know, it might have taken a lot longer if I'd been trying to do this all on my own, just writing little things here and there. So you've been really proactive to empower yourself as an actor. Why do you think you've been able to do that? I imagine a lot of people would just give up. I think I'm very fortunate that I have a fantastic support base. Uh, I already had um, a community through the acting I'd done pre-coming out and transition and you know, performing artists, artistic people in general tend to be super compassionate and understanding. A lot of people who don't fit societal norms gravitate towards theatre and art. Uh, so that was very helpful. And, um, yeah, I suppose if you if you have a passion for something and you're lucky enough to have enough support that you're able to push through all of those, you know, hard conversations and the fatigue uh, then it's it's possible, but it's certainly I know it's a struggle for many people, and I feel very privileged that I've managed to find theatre makers and friends who have given me opportunities as myself, rather than having to play straight cis people all the time. <laughs> you found a wonderful opportunity which you've carved out for yourself with Misfit Toys Productions with the fantastic DL Turnbull. And, of course, you're starring in Early Days with Bradley Storer, who's been on the show. It's quite a groundbreaking play about gender identity. Tell us more about that. It's, it's good fun. Uh, both Brad and I were involved in the early stages of reading through uh, early drafts of the work, and we both feel very passionately about the themes uh, that are explored. There's, of course, the relationship between a cis man and a trans man, uh, but there's also dealing with grief and loss and mental illness, cancel culture. Uh, there's so much in this play and it's fantastic in that it's not tokenistic or making a, a big deal out of it either. It's it's just a slice of life. It's hopeful as well. I, I find I need hope in a work or I will just switch off because the world is terrifying enough <laughs> without having some hope. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Define cancel culture for us in, 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 your, in your view and uh, tell us how Early Days explores it. Ooh, yes. Cancel culture to me is it's a big issue. I, I would define it as uh, public figures who have a platform and have to an, an extent abused that platform or people feel that way. Uh, then being boycotted or being deplatformed so that they don't have the amount of reach they previously did. And it's an issue because people disagree about what and um, what does and does not constitute a good reason for someone to be cancelled. And perhaps the um, nuances of argument and discussion and dialogue that is very difficult to do on social media, especially, you know, with the lack of tone 
Um, you can easily be polarized. Uh, and the play, it's only really one scene, but I love that scene. And it's the, the two main characters having a discussion and you can really see the difference between their intersections and the the privilege or the, the different experiences of cis versus trans people when it comes to certain figures who shall not be named uh, and the, uh, the gap between understanding, but then how they can bridge that gap with compassion as well. So it's a beautiful little scene. Give us some examples of uh, council culture that have really kind of, you know, impacted on you personally, uh, that have really disturbed you or, you know, your thought were valid. Like, can you give us some examples? I can. Uh, okay. I, I, I will. No, it's obvious anyway. So JK Rowling with all of her stuff uh, has, of course, heavily impacted the trans community in particular. There's been a lot of discussion around can you separate the art from the artist? Should we? Um, people who grew up with the books or like myself, I found a lot of solace in those books. I haven't tried to read them again yet. i um, a little bit worried about when I do try. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of ignorance and misunderstanding. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a complex issue because I can, see where JK is coming from in some of what she's saying. Clearly there's, you know, there's some abuse that's happened in her past uh, and that's informing what she's saying, but there's also a refusal to engage with a lot of what some of the trans community, a lot of the trans community is saying. Uh, yeah, sorry, I've forgotten the question now. That sent me down a rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, look, I was just interested in some examples of, of, of cancel culture. Can you think of any in Australia that, that, that have impacted on you? In Australia... I'm, in terms of my online presence, I'm not, in I'm not hugely involved in like the Twitter sphere or things like that. So I haven't. I could probably find some if I researched, but the um the big JK thing is one that's impacted me most recently and most heavily that I can remember. Uh, and it's yeah for for me my experience within that is more philosophical and through secondhand. Uh, people talking about their experiences, I suppose, because I'm. It's always a balance with how much you engage on social media, and I've been taking a bit of a step back in that sense. So I haven't been engaging in cancel culture. I hope, <laughs> hope I haven't been. Uh, I, I tend to be a bit more not forgiving, but yeah, I, I I try and distance myself a bit from that. And it sounds like you're really aware as an artist of just how, you know, polarising social media can be. Yes. It's something that I think many people are aware of, especially people who are in marginalised communities and having their identities discussed in public and dissected and feeling like, they, you know, their identity is a problem in some respects in society. And it's, it's tough. It's really tough. Tell us about the most challenging role you've played and why. Hmm. Uh, ooh, yes, this is a very good question. There are roles that are challenging for different reasons. I mean, in some respects, roles pre-coming out were hard because I wasn't being fully myself. But I almost want to say this role of Tam in early days, uh, because it is so close to home and very vulnerable uh, and 
for me, one of the things that I find the most challenging is actually as an, an asexual actor, when I've got scenes that involve physical intimacy, I'm happy with fighting. Maybe that's why I love pirates because it's all platonic murdering of people, I guess. Uh, whereas kissing and touching and things like that have always, uh, I've, I've always found it confusing anyway in terms of boundaries and what does what did that touch mean? Uh, so I find that challenging. Um, I've only had to kiss someone twice before in my career thus far. And yes, I, I, in, uh, intimacy direction that's become, uh, much more popularized in recent times is going to be very helpful for that. I think I'll feel much more comfortable in this show, but uh, yeah, that I find that very challenging in roles. So you've got this incredible intersection of being a non-binary asexual person. To what extent do you think? <laughs> emerging uh, with those intersections has made you a better actor? I think being that they're very intertwined and being asexual has really compelled me to delve into the nuance of what romance even is. And since I, I'm pretty sure I'm on the arrow, a, a romantic spectrum, um, sorting through my own feelings and watching other people observing these things that I just don't feel or understand or, or trying to translate my own experiences onto something that I it seems quite foreign to me, uh, I think that's given me an understanding of the different types of, of love and relationship. And similarly with, with gender, I can um, empathise with a huge variety of people because as a trans-mask person, you know, I've been socialised as a female and I understand all the, the shit that goes with that. Uh, but I also have a lot of compassion for people socialised as men because of, you know, all the, the pressure and that you know, avoiding rape culture and what perpetuates that. It's very complicated. And having that the responsibility that comes with privilege is a huge challenge. And dissecting that I think is incredibly important for everyone who is a human but also especially in acting for status and things like that. Three CRs. You're listening to an interview with Law Burns on Three CRs in your face. It sounds like you're really aware of the responsibilities of being an actor, uh, perhaps more so than many others. I wouldn't say that necessarily. Uh, it's a it's a journey. I I try and think about this stuff as much as I can, you know, without completely. Um. It can be overwhelming, uh, but I yes, I do think right now, especially things like privilege and awareness of intersectionality is paramount and we need a lot of compassion when we're talking to ourselves and to others as well. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because one criticism of Australian media and uh, the representation of Australian popular culture is that it's not as aware of those intersections as what it should be. Yes, I would agree with that. I, I think if you compare Australia with the US in terms of the Black Lives, Lives Matters movement, uh, we still don't want to talk about um, Indigenous Australians and, you know, whether we have actually truly apologised because we've done a lot of symbolic gestures, but there's a huge amount of systemic stuff going on and I'm, I'm sure that Indigenous people could have a lot more to say about that. I don't want to. No, my cat's stepping on the computer. Don't you do that. Sorry. <laughs> um, yes, I, I wouldn't want to talk too much about something that's not part of my identity, but I agree, definitely. 
what are some of the other social justice issues that are dear to your heart at the moment? Uh, I'm studying the ethics of capitalism at uni, uh, and that is something that I care a lot about. Uh, shows such as The Good Place have really ignited a lot of feelings and thoughts around being a, a cog in a machine and uh, capitalism versus socialism versus mixed economies. Uh, so I'm very interested in that. Very, uh, I'm, I'm in the process of interrogating of white supremacy and the ways I've been exposed to that and how I might be perpetuating that, which is hard but good to do. And, of course, you know, queer issues in general, I have endless time for the queer community. It's, I, I actually would love to somehow assist with discourse in that sense, with the pol polarisation within the queer community itself. There are um, a lot of discussions and some are less helpful than others when it comes to people feeling very hurt uh, and then not really understanding each other and chasms happening because of that. So you're really aware of uh, a lot of issues that make people uncomfortable, uh, including yourself, but you're not afraid to tackle them. I, I hope, I mean, I am afraid, but, but I am attempting to do the best I can and I have a lot to um, thank in terms of I've, I've got fantastic role models who I can look up to and that helps me to not, not give up and not just be completely overwhelmed by it because systemic issues are huge and it's very easy to just feel like you can't make a difference and it's hopeless and why even try. But, of course, if everyone thought that, nothing would happen and if everyone does try, that is how change happens. So, hmm. Tell us... Tell us more about some of the thoughts and emotions that are coming up for you uh, about white supremacy. Oh, okay. Words are hard. Uh, emotions, there's definitely, I'm interrogating, you know, white guilt uh, and m my own complicity in system and systems and the privilege that I do have and how to use that. And I keep thinking about that Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility and trying to work out what can I do, what is actually helpful, how much can I do with what I've got without completely exhausting myself. Because in the past, uh, when, I have, when I first began to think about issues and things that were outside my tiny bubble of being a teenager, it, it completely overwhelmed me and I became very depressed and I was convinced I had to sacrifice everything or I was a terrible person, uh, which is a very extreme but quite easy slope to slide down. So I'm still figuring out that particular balance as well. You mentioned mixed economies before. Tell us a bit more about them, particularly during this era of COVID-19. <laughs> this is in my philosophy essay. <laughs> Shout out to Dan Halliday, my lecturer. Uh, so I discovered in the course of researching my essay topic that, in fact, what we think of as capitalism nowadays tends to be more akin to a mixed economy between capitalism and socialism. Uh, pure capitalism wouldn't involve things like, for instance, here in Australia, we wouldn't have uh, back deals between, you know, government and the gas industry or the mining industry. There wouldn't be um, inheritance that was just, there'd be an inheritance tax. Uh, there are a lot of things that could be classed as hangovers from feudalism rather than capitalism. And there are other things that are part of our 
capitalist economy that are actually more akin to socialism, like the welfare state and things like that. So most economies nowadays, I would say, not that I'm anywhere near an expert, uh, but they are mixed economies. You alluded to lateral hostility in the LGBTIQ community before. How do we deal with that as a community? (laughs) I think smarter people than me need to uh, give us advice there. From what I've been reading and thinking about lately, I think we need to talk in person as much as possible. Uh, If we can listen first, um, what I've read about social psychology and things like that uh, tends to say that in, in trying to convince people of something, you really need to listen first because otherwise you'll just be defensive straight away because you know someone's trying to convince you. But if you listen to the other person and just ask them some questions, you're not – I don't think anyone's necessarily going to convince another person of something in one interaction. Uh, and that's the really hard part within the queer community. We all have a lot of hurt and baggage we're carrying and we need to have multiple interactions that are safe and that are compassionate to really start to untangle what's actually happening uh, and find a helpful discourse within that that's founded in yeah, compassion and understanding and empathy. And it sounds like the two characters in the play early days are doing just that. I would say so, yes. It's a really beautiful journey and you get to see them um, fight and their vulnerabilities, the chinks in their armour. But the, the hope that I mentioned before is that you then also get to watch these two people who love each other find their way back and work through these really big issues. And that's something that I think we should be seeing more often in the media. I know that conflict sells and all that, but the media could be teaching us very useful skills, um, such as first aid. I get so annoyed when no one does proper first aid in film. That's a separate issue. But also conflict resolution and the, the nuances of that, which you don't see because it's well, Hollywood doesn't find it interesting. And it sounds like you and Bradley Storer are really emerging as actors, but in different ways in early days. That must be an incredible experience, having that, that connection but also uh, experiencing that growth together. Tell us a bit more about that. It is. It's very interesting. Uh, I think Brad mentioned this when you talked to him, but we haven't we haven't met in person. Uh, he could be eight feet tall. I had I have no idea. He might have tentacles instead of legs. Uh, but we do have a, a connection, and it's been really wonderful exploring the scenes with our director Brooke Murray and asking, you know, what what does this line really mean? What are they actually saying there? And having yeah discussions about the issues in the play, and I think it's yeah for the the acting side of things, it's been interesting doing this through Zoom and having to find other ways to communicate with each other. Even though you're sort of using the same skill set, it's also it's a bit different. And I'm very curious what it will be like when we're actually in person and able to do things like blocking and look at each other in the eye instead of at a screen. Yeah. Any thoughts on on how early days will manifest for the public? Uh, like, you know, how's all that progressing? When, can, when will it be a finished product, do you think? And how will that finished product be expressed? How will it manifest? Uh, we have postponed 
until February and we're hoping by that point we'll be able to have a small, it was always going to be a small audience anyway. So our, our dream is to be able to do things live with an audience and perhaps we'll have face marks, masks and distancing and disinfectants and things like that. Or perhaps, you know, we'll have to do it outdoors. Uh, it's, you have to be flexible nowadays and worst case scenario, we can find a way to do it online. Um, but it would be ideal to be able to do it in person. And at least we're seeing good numbers here in Melbourne now. So fingers crossed it will, it will happen more or less as previously with a few small adjustments. The prospect of an outdoor production sounds exciting, especially as early days sounds like it's a very physical production. That could work quite well. Yes, yes, it could. And February, it'll it'll be very warm. Uh, and it's, yeah, I've, I've done a, an outdoor production before and it's it's very fun. You have to be prepared for rain. My cello got rained on. <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, I reckon that could work. We'll We'll see how we go. Of course, Early Days is a Misfit Toys production. They're also doing a bit of a... Uh, a double hand with another production called Dad Jeans, and they're doing a bit of fundraising to, to get both productions, you know, up and running. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, there is a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll be having both plays performed together in the one show, one after the other. And I've actually seen, uh, we've shown each other our plays over Zoom, which was very fun. There are a lot of parallels between the characters. I can really see my character in one of the the other characters uh so that's very very interesting uh and yeah it's basically to help cover the costs and hopefully break even or dare we say even make a profit but uh, yes kickstarter fantastic law burns thank you so much for talking to me on 3cr today it's been a real pleasure chatting thank you for having me same here 3CR.
And that was Jesus Jones with Move Mountains, while Alfred Peck's new documentary is called Freedom Street, and it explores the plights of refugees stranded in Indonesia. The documentary is currently under production, and I spoke with Alfred all about it this week. What I want to focus on specifically is how Australia's uh, Operation Sovereign Border Policy doesn't just affect uh, the refugees that went through, uh, that got detained in Manus and Nauru and eventually some of the mainlands. This is quite essentially the other side of that policy and how it has affected the refugees that are in a protracted transit over there in my home country, Indonesia. So that's the biggest issue that it doesn't get talked about almost at all. It has been talked about here and there in the media, and it has been talked about here and there in some documentaries, but nobody has really truly extensively explore the deeper, uh, truly the other, uh, the extent of what the other side is like. So that's the main issue, and that's the main thing that um, I want to highlight. But it also talks about the plights of the refugees that are stuck over there, um, how they basically have zero rights. The only thing they can do is to exist and breathe. <laughs> um, and that's, that, that is one of the quotes that one of the experts has mentioned in our documentary, so stay tuned. But also there's, there's just the fact that, um, it's the fact that Indonesia has essentially been used as Australia's last you know, border, uh, uh, as a last border protection for refugees that are trying to come to Australia, um, I guess, by boat and whatnot. Um, but that's, uh, and also it highlights the fact that uh, these, it, it highlights the intricacies that comes with Australia and Indonesia relationship when it comes to dealing with the refugees in the region as well. Uh, and so that's what I want to talk about. Uh, and that's what I'm exploring in this Freedom Street documentary. So the actions of the Australian government have really contributed and created this human rights crisis for refugees in Indonesia. Yes, indirectly though, Australia has absolved themselves legally <laughs> uh, by signing um, treaties and agreements with Indonesia, uh, such as the Bali, uh, such as the Bali Treaty. Oh, I forgot the name. Sorry, uh, the Bali agreement or the Bali Treaty and the Lom uh, and and such. And also, Australia doesn't actually have an official diplomatic policy with Indonesia when it comes to refugee um, handling of the situation. But Australia does pay the International Organization for Migration in Indonesia to basically shelter, house, and give stipends to about 8,500 refugees over there. But there's actually around 14,000 refugees in Indonesia. So there's about 5,000 refugees in the country that are essentially destitute. And most of those refugees arrived in Indonesia after uh, around 2017, 2018, uh, when Australia started to stop giving more funding to the International Organization for Migration. Uh, so that's so that's how you create, and there's essentially two streams of refugees in Indonesia, the ones that are basically in a, uh, funded by Australia to be detained over there and are incentivized and and have incentivized Indonesian government to keep them there at bay and then the ones that are just fully destitute. 
Tell us more about the human rights or lack of human rights of the refugees in Indonesia uh, and how that impacts on their mental health and their physical health. So there are, again, like I said before, there are two streams of refugees in Indonesia. Those that are those that receive Australian funding, they are, and those who doesn't. So the ones that receive the Australian funding are slightly luckier <laughs> in a sense that they are at least provided um, a barely, or they used to be detained in the Indonesian immigration detention centers before they were eventually released into some sort of refugee hostels in various parts of Indonesia. At least they are given shelters and um, some monthly stipends of the equivalent of about $125 per adult equivalent and about $50 equivalent per child. Um, it is barely enough to survive. And then those that are just fully destitute, both groups have no rights, no working rights, no school rights, no medical rights. The only thing that they have difference of is the medical access and facility. Uh, the refugees that are funded by Australia have some limited access to hospitals and things like that through the IOM facilities. And then the ones that are destitute, we just don't, don't have any other facilities whatsoever. A lot of them basically have no access to mental health policy whatsoever. And again, there are articles um, a couple of years ago that talks about how some women refugees have to turn into prostitutions in order to survive. And really, what's, what's literally holding them there right now is the waiting game uh, for them to one day be resettled. And it's not like refugees are trying to all flock to Australia. It's actually a very small number of refugees compared to the rest of the world uh, or to, rest to other parts of the world. Um, Indonesia only holds about 14,000 refugees. Malaysia and Thailand has actually over 120,000 uh, refugees in their own countries. But the, but the reason why in Indonesia is such a small number is because at least in Malaysia and Thailand, refugees are given work rights so they can at least contribute and kind of live off there. Whereas in Indonesia, there's nothing. And th there's just no way of, for, for me personally to describe what they have to go, uh, like the experience of what they have to go through. They, ju they just quite literally have nothing. They only have themselves to rely on. And again, depending on different parts of Indonesia, some Indonesians in different parts of the country like Java are more tolerant, are more cosmopolitan and therefore more friendly towards refugees. But the refugees that are, are stuck in Makassar, which is the, the city that I choose to highlight because it has the third largest number of refugees hosted in the country, are actually quite intolerant they used to be quite racist and hostile against the refugees over there. And, um, and Makassar itself actually has a very, very um, interesting context in relation to Australia. Prior to European colonization, the Makassans, which is where the people of Makassar is from, uh, the people of Makassar actually used to trade the Yolnu Yolnu people of the Arnhem land. Um, they used to trade pearl and the sea cucumber and such, and they were the middleman between the Chinese and the Aborigines. Uh, so that's, and there's that significance, and that's why I specifically chose the city of Makassar as the main setting for the documentary. Alfred, can you share with us the refugee experience that has impacted on you the most while you've been creating this documentary, Freedom Street? 
what has impacted me the most in the refugees experience over there for me it's the fact that the setting like where they are stuck and where they are is actually uh in my previous home country um so yes i'm australian citizen but i actually originally grew up in indonesia i know what it's like to overcome challenges of poverty in indonesia because my family weren't always privileged when we when i was back there but what's visceral for me is the fact that these refugees basically have no hope they they weren't given any opportunities whatsoever they 100% rely on the networks and the connections of other people they don't have any agency they're literally just languishing um for those of them who don't really have the capacity to have self development to you know to better themselves they're pretty much just living day to day they're just trying to figure things out some of them you know try to work illegally but again there are limited opportunities and given the pandemic situation it's just impossible right now and those who do actually have the motivation to better themselves and improve this in this situation again the opportunities are limited and often they have to resort to volunteering with the exception of course of my friend Junaid who is the star of the documentary through some of my assistance and his skills and talents and his excellent english writing ability he has able to become the only refugee journalist in Indonesia or in the region for that matter i haven't really seen any other professional refugee journalists so behind that um be, i guess behind the story as well my my assistance and his skills and our collaboration together has been instrumental in giving him hope and giving him some sort of agency as well uh and that's really something that that profoundly kind of affected me because i never expected to be in the position to be where i to where i am and to witness someone um to give them hope and all that but i did made a conscious decision that if i'm going to feature these refugees and the three stars in my project i will personally um uh do my best to never let them feel exploited and i will do my best to assist them in terms of giving them hope and getting them to a better state and that's also one of the most profound experiences that i've had then then there's the there's aziza and then there's ashfaq as well who's also the stars of uh, the documentary and in particular aziza i believe she's the only female um refugee rohingya um person uh that i've ever uh, uh, that has ever been featured in a documentary like this plight of refugees in indonesia i have never seen anyone extensively talking about female uh, a female refugee experiences and also the fact that she is stateless and was not even born in Myanmar she was actually born in Kuala Lumpur she's only just turned 19 as of 2nd of October 2020 uh, so and she's she's a mom she's already a mother but in spite of that she was very brave to speak up in my documentary and talk about her experience and I've never seen any female like that ever I mean any other related documentary about refugees in Indonesia and to hear that and to hear their experiences especially Aziza has been profound for me because I just never expected that and um the, again I could go on so much more about it but I think um yeah um I'll talk more about it uh, when the time comes uh and there's certainly information that um 
that um, I want you guys to wait and see. Fantastic. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Alfred Peck on 3CRs in your face. To what extent do the intersections in your life impact and influence your focus in the documentary Freedom Street? The extent in which I guess the focus and how I was very much driven to the documentary is because a lot of the intersections of what makes my identity who I am as someone, Alfred, very much determines, very much drives me to create this project. I am Australian citizen, and therefore this is, and therefore you know our tax money um, that Australian government actually is partly responsible for this as well. So there's that element to that. I've been a refugee advocate uh, since 2015, and I got into it by accident. I was just a I was just a media student who was looking to expand my video portfolio and therefore volunteer for um, the social organisations, and I was I just happened to be exposed to the refugee advocacy sector. And that's, it kind of go from there. But the fact that nobody really extensively talk about the other side of the Operation Sovereign Border Policy uh, on the Indonesia side extensively, and the fact that my home country, Indonesia, is also involved in this, and it has been incentivized by Australia to keep them at bay and detain them over there, or, you know, against their will. And there's no proper resettlement path for them to Australia or pretty much anywhere else. Um, there's that aspect as well. And I guess the reason why I'm quite sensitive to the whole idea of what it means to be a refugee is because I'm an immigrant to Australia as well. I know what it's like to, um, uh, the challenges of integration. I know what it's like to try to belong and fit in, prove yourself and all that because that's what my family had to do when we moved to Australia. We all had to start from the bottom again. And also, I guess in Indonesia, um, because I've always been a minority there, being Chinese Indonesian, and I also come from multi-ethnic and multi-religious environment, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of these um, otherings that I've experienced back home. And that's just, that made me very particularly aware of what it means like, what it feels like, and what it what it means to be excluded um, from the mainstream. Um, so that certainly has contributed to my acute sensitivity to um, the topic. And when both of your home countries involved in basically detaining um, and you know, you know, contributing to the you know to this abuse, if some people describe that or uh, an ongoing persecution to basically people who are just simply seeking asylum and seeking protection in the region who happen to be there is just mind boggle. It's just mind boggling. Um, I didn't, I thought there would be more Australians that care about this issue. And the fact that, the fact that Australia used to have what is essentially a reception centers in cooperation with other countries um, during the Vietnam War in terms of actually properly resettling refugees and delivering them to Australia by plane back in the 70s and the 80s during the Indo-Chinese crisis and actually provide a safe resettlement path for refugees in the region. And that's been abandoned since the 90s. That just mind boggles me because it's not like we can't 
it's not like we can't safely resettle these people and provide them an alternative options. It's the fact that we don't do that anymore. It's the fact that we choose to ignore all of the good things we have done in the past. That's also has very much profound, uh, very much have left a very profound um, impact for me because Australia can do it. And it's actually cheaper to be humane in this context too. Alfred, where is the creation of your Freedom Street documentary at and how can people help you to complete the project? We have filmed most of the project. Um, Personally, I've travelled back and forth between Indonesia and Australia uh, since 2018 and 2019. I've returned every year. I've recorded um, the refugees' lives um, over there and I've interviewed a bunch of experts in Australia and Indonesia regarding the matter. And I've so far self-funded entirely <laughs> this project. And it's quite a lot of money for me personally because um, I am, you know, um, I, I have a normal full-time job. I basically spent a lot of my savings in creating this project. There were lots and lots of challenges getting things off the ground to even find colleagues who can volunteer their time. So what ended up happening is that, yes, uh, I ended up putting 90% of the effort myself and the colleagues that has helped me throughout these last two years will have helped me in between in terms of setting up the the projects um goals and writing applications and whatnot so where we are right now is the fundraising stage and also the media raising awareness stage two reasons why the fundraising stage is essential for us in order to actually complete the project at the moment, with the radar that's going, it's going to be a really long time if no, if there's very little support um, going at it. Because at the moment, I have to self-fund this, and um, and my colleagues have very limited time, and so it's essential for us to be able to pay um, others so that we can actually pay for the editors and the distributions and whatnot. And there's already links. Uh, there's the already fundraising page from Documentary Australia Foundation. Uh, and that Documentary Australia Foundation link uh, for, for our fundraising for the documentary is actually tax deductible. So there's that aspect as well. And there's also the Chuff link, but that's not the tax deductible one. That's another one. And the second aspect is that we need to start raising awareness about the project. Because at the end of the day, the reason why I wanted to create this documentary is to create, uh, is to create is my intention, my gift to the world, to create a tool that advocates, change makers, and organizations can use to for their campaign, for their for their advocacy, for um, their efforts to change um, the current government policy. And what better tool than uh, to create a, an effective and an engaging documentary that fully contextualizes this entire situation? Because at the end of the day. Um, there would be no Manus Island, there would be no Nauruan, there would be no mainland detention centres issues if Australia were to cooperate with its Southeast Asian neighbours and to continually do that since the Vietnam War um, era. Because at the end of the day, this is something that Australia has essentially choose to ignore. It is unjust, it's very expensive. Australia has spent Australia has spent more than $10 billion in maintaining Manasanaru and to now also 
facilitating the mainland detention centers and Christmas islands, whereas Australia could have been saving its money by actually creating reception centers in, in its Southeast Asian neighbors so that refugees can be actually processed and therefore eliminate the need for refugees to desperately come by boat. Alfred, give us that link for that tax deductible website so people yes. can actually make a donation. That would be wonderful. Yes. Uh, it's a URL name. <laughs> uh, I guess it's documentaryaustralia.com.au slash projects slash freedom dash street. That's, that's the tax deductible link. There's that. And then there's also chuffed.org slash project slash freedom dash street. If I may, um, may I add some bonus facts? Um, why I chose the name Freedom Street? It's a great name. Tell us more about that. It's a, it actually came from a very big irony. Where my friends used to live, or my, where, where some of my friends live right now, the star of the documentary, where I choose, that I chose, they, um, when I was looking for their address, um, and I kid you not, and it saddens me that they do not understand the language, but when I saw their address, yeah, the address is called Jalan Perintis Kemerdekaan. And when I translate that, name to English, that it literally means the pioneer of Freedom Street. And that street name is supposed to refer to Indonesia's independence from the Dutch, you know, freeing themselves from the colonial age. And now that street, that particular street contains about 10 or so refugee hostels in Makassar city. And um, that's now being used as a what is essentially a dumping ground for refugees um, in that in city of Makassar in Indonesia. So there is no hope there. There's just there's only irony, and it it has it it disheartened me very much that they don't even realize what it means. It took an Indonesian to point them out <laughs> uh, what the street means, and if that wasn't a sign for me to do the documentary, I don't know what. I just it's it was just so it was just too uncanny. I have no idea why the refugee hostels in the city of Makassar or some of the refugee hostels in the city of Makassar are located over there. I genuinely have no idea. I'm at a loss for words. And that name has essentially become the hope for these people. So that's why I chose the title. Alfred Peck, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR and best of luck with Freedom Street. It sounds like an awesome documentary and very, very important. Thank you so much. No worries. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us out is Black Box with their classic, Hold On.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. On the 15th of October 1970, the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne collapsed during construction, killing 35 people and injuring many more. 3CR will mark this important 50-year commemoration with a special broadcast featuring audio from our archives. I think it's uh, well documented why it collapsed. Uh, The uh, engineer released every second bolt and just couldn't handle it and down it came. But for a while it was not exactly clear who had survived. The first impression was that uh, I've never been in a war, but it certainly looked like a, a war zone. People couldn't wait and they were jumping in the water trying to get to save some of their mates. The Westgate Bridge disaster. 50 years on. Tune in at 2pm on Thursday the 15th of October. when I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food Not Bombs.